Let's see what the Word of God has for us this morning. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter 4. Chapter 4 begins where chapter 3 left off, which is where we were last week, with Peter giving divinely inspired advice to those who are suffering because of their faith in Jesus Christ, because they are living for Jesus Christ. Not too long ago, I read the story of a Christian woman taken from her home in Pakistan and imprisoned just because she was living for Jesus Christ. A little while after that, I read about a man imprisoned in China. The article read, in 2008, the charges for preaching Christ were increased to subverting the Chinese government and endangering national security. Abhi Jang, a former Muslim, was sentenced to 15 years in prison. His wife is allowed to visit him only once every three months and for 15 minutes each time, and she and his children miss him greatly. He has been in prison for Christ for over a decade. Now I want you to remember that when Peter wrote these words, that Nero was the emperor of Rome, and in historical context now, Christians are suffering in the church for living for Jesus Christ. And Peter writes to help them and by extension to help us endure in our faith. And any of these principles for enduring suffering that Peter writes, I remind you again, actually transcend the immediate historical context of simply suffering for the sake of persecution to suffering all kinds of suffering that life affords everyone not just those of us who live in the faith, but everyone. We may not suffer exactly in the same manner as the Christians of that early church, but there are Christians suffering for their faith right now, I can assure you. I, read not, I heard I talked to a guy not too long ago who was fired from his position in a company simply because he would not walk in a gay pride parade that his company wanted all the employees to walk in as they sponsored it, and he lost his job over that. I couldn't begin to tell you how many women I have counseled over 30 years of being a pastor who are absolutely tormented by the men that they are married to, men who aren't saved, who put their faith in Jesus Christ to the test on a constant basis. We may not be in prison for Jesus, but there are plenty of us suffering because we live for Jesus, even in America, right now. And so as chapter 3 finishes up, Peter says a key principle for enduring suffering caused by the injustices in this world is to be constantly reminding ourselves that Jesus is coming again with justice for all. That means that God will personally vindicate our suffering. And as always, Peter says we can live triumphantly today by keeping heaven's promises for tomorrow ever before you. We do that every time we gather together. If you look at the themes of the songs that Kyle leads us through, there is almost always in every song a last stanza that promises heaven for tomorrow. And so we, we do that. We, we seek to live for today. Every time we gather together by reminding ourselves of heaven's promises for tomorrow and for all of eternity. So one day on the promise of God, he is going to recreate paradise that has been lost. 
paradise that has been lost because the world was ruined by sin. And the world was ruined by sin because of mankind's beginning decision to rebel against God and live their own way, live his own way, her own way, uh, in rebellion against God's will to be able to live for self and to save his people from the penalty of their sins against God, to restore them to their creator God, God sent Jesus, his son, as the savior. That's why Jesus said, I came to seek and to save that which was lost. So when Jesus saves you, you don't just go to heaven when you die. When Jesus saves you, you are restored to God now and forever. When Jesus saves you, you are adopted into the family of God. You become a joint heir of all God's promises of the future with Jesus Christ himself. When Jesus saves you, his heavenly father becomes your heavenly father. And so what Peter says is, when Jesus saves you, life begins. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall never perish, but have everlasting life. Not just life in heaven when you die, Life in Jesus right now while you live. And so if you want to talk to me more about what that means, what it means to have Jesus save you, I'm glad you're here today. I think you came to the right place. I believe God brought you here. Just see me after the service. Let me at least give you this booklet on the real Jesus to help you with your questions. Better yet, let's make an appointment to talk where I can open up God's word and tailor it to the questions that you have. But the everyday challenge of living life waiting for Jesus to return, the everyday challenge is to know how to endure in your faith until he comes. And so having encouraged Christians to remain faithful in suffering with confidence in the coming vindication of God, Peter now continues his advice on suffering by emphasizing the effects of suffering on the Christian life that we live. Believe it or not, Peter is actually going to teach us that there are times, many times, when suffering can actually be good for us. Like last week's text, he's going to throw in another one of those preaching to the dead problem passages that twist our brains a little bit. Like I did last week, I promise I'll get to that. Just sit tight, okay, and, uh, and stay with me. But let's listen to Peter's divinely inspired guidance on suffering as it pertains to us living the Christian life. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing with the Gentiles. That means the unbelievers. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the unbelievers want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. 
For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So in this text, this is the basic outline, an exhortation to suffer like Christ, and therefore an exhortation for us to sanctify ourselves in Christ. And so Peter begins with an exhortation for us to suffer like Christ. He tells us, look to the example of Jesus Christ. Now, in telling us to do that, he is not calling us to sinlessness. He is calling us to obedience. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. We're always after our theology to touch life on the street. And what that means is this, to live the Christian life requires us to change our paradigm, how we view life. It completely begins with a total transformation of the way that we think, of the way that we see life. At whatever age you are, the way that you see life is to be transformed because of your relationship with Jesus Christ. And so before Jesus, Peter teaches, the whole New Testament teaches, before Jesus, we were enslaved by the desires of our flesh. Feelings drive our flesh, not gospel facts. Desires drive our flesh, not divine truth. And so evil wins when we live life before Jesus according to our fleshly desires. And so you see the world around you gets worse. It appears to get worse by the day. Now, redemption changes all that. Redemption changes all that at the most personal level. Sin is to the bone. We call that total depravity. But so is salvation. So is salvation. But where sin is a work of the flesh, salvation is even more powerful because it's a work of God. It's a work of God. So when God works in us through the gift of faith to save us, I want you to understand that he also begins a new work to sanctify us. When God saves us, that's not the end of it. It begins a new work where God sanctifies us. And so what I'm saying to you is this. Grace does not stop with your salvation. Grace is not an experience that you have at a point in time. Grace is a fact of life for you in Jesus Christ for the rest of your life. And it all begins with a renewal of our mind in the gospel. That means the way that we see living life is changed. Fundamentally, completely changed because our minds have been renewed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Before Christ, I am driven by my flesh. After Christ, I am driven by God's spirit in me. And that causes me to live differently. Why? 
because I fundamentally see life differently. And so Peter's point is that God's Spirit calls Christ's followers now, now that you have Jesus, to no longer live by the flesh, but to live for the will of God. So as to live the rest of the time that you have, the rest of your life in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And for those times when life is hard, like during persecution, like during suffering, Peter's exhortation for living life and the will of God is this. Be armed for life with the mind of Christ. Be armed for living life with the mind of Christ. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. In other words, mentally prepare yourself with the mind of Jesus Christ. Have you lived long enough to realize that so much of success in all things in life begins with mental preparation? You got to think about it. You got to be deliberate. You got to plan if you're going to enjoy success in life. So I, I, I failed to learn that at an early age. I remember my sophomore year in high school, I started throwing the shot put in the discus for the, uh, for the uh, track team. I was mentored by this senior who was an absolute champion, an absolute champion in his senior year, you know, across Europe. I went to high school in Germany. Across Europe, this guy was a European, uh, a European champion, and I was mentored by him. So another year went by. I was a junior. He was a freshman in college, and he comes back in the spring during track season for a visit, and he comes over to see me to see how I'm going. Meantime, in that sophomore year, I'd managed to pick me up uh, a girlfriend. And it seems like that's all I could think about. She was all I could think about. So even though I'm on the track field throwing the disc and the shot, but I'm always looking up in the stands to see where she is and what she's doing, see if she's watching. You know you know how like a little kid is uh, that always says, watch me, watch me, watch me do this? I, I was a slow learner. So uh, I developed kind of slowly, so I'm always looking to see if she's watching. And my mentor comes up to me and says, so how are you doing? And I said, I'm, I'm doing okay. And he says, yeah, that's not what coach says. Coach says your mind seems to always be somewhere else. And so it's clear that you must be mentally prepared if you're going to succeed at anything. And I wasn't mentally prepared, and therefore it seems like my success in that particular endeavor, in that particular sport, just sort of froze in time. My mind was somewhere else. Some of you old-timers remember Yogi Berra's famous saying that 90% of this game is half mental, you know? And so the, uh, the idea here is we can survive persecution. We can survive suffering in everyday life. But in order to survive, we have to be mentally prepared. We have to be armed with the mind of Jesus Christ. The world says, get your head in the game. And that's what Peter's saying here. Get your head in the game. Prepare yourself mentally, how? By arming yourself with the mind of Jesus Christ. And that's just not true for persecution, that's true for all suffering in life. Mental preparation begins the process of us being armed with the mind of Christ so that we can suffer and endure. We endure in suffering in this lifetime because we are armed with the mind of Christ. Therefore, we are tapping in to the power 
of Jesus Christ, which is what we need to endure when we suffer, which is what we need just to live everyday life. And Jesus, here's the thing, we tap into the mind of Christ when we think like Jesus. Jesus knew that God would resurrect him and judge the world. Jesus knew that. And armed with that future knowledge of a promised resurrection, of a coming judgment, Jesus could surrender his life to the present. We need the same mental confidence that in Jesus Christ, we also will be resurrected. And as part of God's judgment, Jesus will return and vindicate us from all the injustices in this world from which we suffer. And to know that means we can surrender to whatever God allows in our life and not be defeated by it. We can even surrender to die for Jesus Christ if that's what he calls us to do. Jesus did it. The martyrs in Bible history did it. Christians are doing it to this very day. And armed with the mind of Jesus Christ, you and I can do it too if he ever calls on us to pay that ultimate price for him. We can handle any and all suffering if we are armed for life with the mind of Jesus Christ. Peter's amazing thesis is this. Suffering for Christ is actually good for our Christian lives if we suffer like Christ. Or I could say, with the mind of Christ. God actually works it out for good if we suffer like Christ, with the mind of Christ. He gives two reasons in calling us to suffer like Christ. Number one, he says suffering helps our obedience. Suffering helps our obedience. Verse one, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves in the same way of thinking. For whoever suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin and basically can start living a life of obedience, to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passion, but now to live for the will of God. Do you see how Peter moves in his thinking from Christ to us? Since Christ suffered for us, focus on Christ, arm yourselves, focus on us, with the mind of Jesus Christ. His suffering actually helps us in our suffering. It helps us if we obey what we are taught to do. And it helps us to obey what we are taught to do by having our mind renewed in the mind of Jesus Christ. And so when calling us to live for the flesh no more, Peter is not calling us to sinlessness. Peter is calling us to obedience. And he says that Christ did not live his, live his life on earth following his earthly desires, and therefore, neither should we. He's our example. He's our savior. He didn't live according to earthly desires. Therefore, armed with the mind of Jesus Christ, that shouldn't be driving our life either as followers of Jesus Christ. Our quest in studying scripture, our quest in listening to sermons just like today, our quest when we sing these doctrinally rich songs that we sing, our quest has to be to live the will of God as it is expressed in our everyday experience in life, 
Not just when we come to church on Sunday, but to live the will of God in our everyday life out there on the street. All divine truth calls us to obedience to it. That's following Jesus. That's what that means. Kids get it. They sing that song. Obedience is the very best way to show that you believe. Well, that's true. It's exactly what Peter is saying here. We are called to a life of obedience. That's what following Christ is all about. So reason one to suffer like Christ, it's good for our obedience when we simply live life after the example of our Savior who suffered. Remember, reason number two for suffering is very practical. Peter just says, okay, you've sinned enough. Enough is enough, we say. You have sinned enough. Verse three, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the unbelievers want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatries. Peter's saying, okay, there's been enough time devoted to that. Enough is enough. The time that is past suffices. You've spent enough time doing that. Peter says, we spent enough of our lives living for sin. And so here it is. If you're genuinely a Christian, genuinely a Christian, you truly have been saved and the Spirit of God lives in you, sooner or later, you will come to the conclusion. We all will come to the conclusion. Personally, just like you came to a conclusion to be saved, you will come to the conclusion that now it's time for me to live with Christ, for Christ. I've had enough of this. I've had enough. <clears throat> now is the time for me to start living for Jesus Christ. You know, it seems like some of us will walk away from Christ for a while. Maybe it's in high school. Maybe it's in college or right after. Some well into their 20s. Frankly, I was one of them. Let's just admit something. When we come of age, there are a lot of things out there in this world to tempt us. And the fact of the matter is, when we first come of age and are very inexperienced in our adult life, that a lot of that stuff looks pretty sweet to us. Sin actually looks good. Sometimes you wonder why teens in a Christian high school will actually want to, it seems like, for a season of time, want to do the very thing that the handbook forbids. For the, it's because of this. For this moment in time, they are believing that their parents, their teachers, their pastors, even God himself is withholding something from them that for the moment they think is good. This is the sin that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. For the moment, they think that God himself is withholding something good from them, and they are determined to experience. But in time, thanks be to God for his patience with us. In time, genuine Christians will be led by the Spirit of God living inside of them to see things differently. In time, genuine Christians will realize, I've had enough of this. I have had enough of this, and I want to start living for Jesus Christ. Dr. Lee Robertson once said, all the devil's apples have worms. All the devil's apples 
have worms. In time, God will graciously lead us because of his spirit in us to conclude that we have eaten enough worm meat. We're tired of worms. Worms don't taste good anymore. We conclude that we have had enough. The time has come and I have had enough of living my life for sin and because of God's spirit in me, I'm ready to start living for Jesus. Now, I'm saying that to you to say this. We need to be patient with those in our midst who are still dieting on worm meat. We need to be patient with them as God has been with us. The gospel demands it. The gospel demands that the same patience you ask Jesus to show you we must show others. We must give time to, to God to do his work, just like God took time to do his work in you and me. So take it from a guy who messed this up. Be less concerned about what everyone will think of you because of your teenager's behavior, and be more prayerful about what your teenager thinks of Jesus Christ. That's the issue, not what everybody thinks of you but what your teenager thinks of Jesus Christ. And I want you to know that eventually, genuine Christ followers will mature spiritually. They will want to follow Jesus Christ because his spirit is in them and he will do that. God will be God in them. It's the sanctifying work of his spirit. Now, later in life, the temptation to sin is always gonna be there. But when we get to this saved, when we say enough is enough, I want to live for Christ, our appetite for the temptation of sin will change. Our appetite, it'll always be there, but our appetite for it changes. And we find ourselves wanting to live for Jesus. That's the maturing work of God's spirit in us. Now that's not going to be easy at first, especially at first. Why? Because Peter says, the old crowd is still there, and they are going to be pulling you back. The old crowd is still there, and they're going to be pulling you back. Verse 4, with respect to this, they, the unbelievers of verse 3, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. They speak evil of you. The old crowd's pull is powerful, and they want you back. And Peter says, if you don't come back, they get angry. They get angry when you don't come back. You know, for my first several years as a Christian, I declined to go to high school reunions because I ran with that drinking crowd that verse 3 talks about. And so I just didn't, I didn't have the maturity to go back and witness to them. I just didn't have the maturity at that time. So in my mind, the best I could do was avoid them. The best I could do was avoid them. I was pretty sure they wouldn't like the new me anyway. And verse 4 says exactly that. They are going to think it's strange that you don't do this anymore. They're going to think it's strange that you don't run with them anymore in the same flood of fleshly sins. And how do they respond to the new you? What you should you expect? They're going to malign you. They're going to say bad things about you because you don't want to run with them and do the same things anymore. 
My early days of being a Christian, I was afraid of that. So I just avoided the old crowd till I matured in my faith. By the way, how cool is it if your old crowd was a Christ-following crowd? How cool is that? I'm just, think about that with me. I suggest that you Christian teens need each other. How cool is it if your old crowd is your youth group? And there's a bunch of you guys who grew up living for the Lord. Sure, you struggled like everybody else. But generally, you gathered together at youth group meetings and you explored what it means to live for the Lord. How cool is it if your old crowd is the youth group crowd and together you guys were living for Jesus Christ? So what I'm saying is that's what we need in church. Kids need to be around each other, helping each other live for Christ. Teens need to be around each other, helping each other live for Christ. No different than adults need to be around each other, helping each other live for Christ. I was just at a senior's activity. I know I'm way too young for that. But uh, the fact is they need each other to help each other live for Jesus Christ. You can downright get mean and old and nasty and crotchety in your old age if you're not hanging around other Christians. Nothing's ever as good as it used to be. The buffet's not as big as it used to be. The dinner plates are smaller than they used to be. Nothing's ever as good as they used to be. You can become a nasty old person if you don't spend your time around other people living for Jesus Christ. We all need it. From children to seniors, we need to be. How cool is it when your old crowd is a Christ-following crowd? And you can go back to your reunion and celebrate all the things Jesus has done in your life since you were 16. How great is that? Teens need church membership as bad as the rest of us do. We need it because we're weak. And we need each other as part of God's plan to stay strong in the faith. One final comment about the old crowd that can give you grief when you start following Jesus Christ, and it's, it's very chilling. Verse 5, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. That's where you swallow hard when you realize what that means. God will vindicate. But I want you to know that that doesn't mean God is vindictive. God is not willing that any should perish. It is in the heart of God that all should come to repentance. In love, that's exactly why he sent Jesus. For that very reason. But God is just. And in the end, those who speak evil against us and persecute us for following Jesus. In the end, they will face the justice of God. Make no mistake about it. We can endure because Christ will return and vindicate us. But my friends, we must not take the promise that Christ will return and vindicate us. We must not take that promise and develop a spirit of vindictiveness against others because of it. We must not do that. Our God vindicates without being vindictive. And you and I must wait on that promise without developing a spirit of vindictiveness toward others who even persecute us. We must look upon the old crowd not as a bunch of germs that we should avoid, but as a mission field white unto harvest. It's how we have to do it. We must want their salvation, not their punishment. That's why Jesus tells you to pray for your enemies. Only then can you get over 
the normal fleshly hatred that you feel for those who hate you. You pray for your enemies and you want their salvation, not their punishment. After all, my friends, where would we be when we were enemies of God and Ephesians say we all were? Where would we be when we were enemies of God if God did not give us his mercy? Where would we be if someone didn't offer us the gospel message when we were enemies of God? I don't care if you were five years old. Where would we be? God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, not after we cleaned it all up, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We have nothing to glory in save for Jesus Christ who saved us. We have nothing to be proud of and therefore we have nothing to be condemning for because we're just sinners saved by grace. And a key evidence that grace is operative in us is for us to desire God's mercy in the gospel for those who hate us for following Jesus Christ. I want you to think about that when you go to work on Monday around some people that can make your life pretty tough. I want you to think about that. God's mercy is alive in us when we desire God's mercy for those who hate us for following Jesus Christ. Anybody can love those who love them. Only God's spirit in us can lead us to love those who hate us. And so we're exhorted to realize that sin has done nothing for us and never will. And therefore we are exhorted to realize that living for Christ in obedience to God's will, even in suffering, is all that will satisfy our souls. Second exhortation is to sanctify ourselves in Christ. Remember, this is not an exhortation that just says stop sinning. This says, this is an exhortation, start living for God's will as your paradigm for life. It's not just a call to stop sinning. It's a call to start living. But for something different than what you were previously living for, where you previously lived for your fleshly desires, now you live to live, to experience, to, to express the will of God in your everyday life. And that's what sanctification is all about. Verse 2, our newfound purpose is to live for the will of God. That's what sanctification is. That's literally what it means to be set apart unto God when you get saved. It means set apart from sin. It does mean that. But I want you to know that you do not achieve sanctification simply by setting a whole new list of standards for yourself. I don't care if you set a hundred new standards for yourself. That is not what's going to get the job done in your life in living for Jesus. The key motivation for sanctification is a spiritual desire to want to be set apart unto God. You want it. That's your motivation. You want it because you love God because you get that he first loved you. Love is the, is the strong motivator. Love is the strong motivator. You want to live the will of God. You want the will of God as the norm for your everyday life experience. I think of those of you that take Jonas's class on the theology of suffering. Look, you don't just go there because somebody told you once that the standard for good Christians is that you go to Sunday school. As if like going to Sunday school has just become a new standard for you and that makes you good or at least better than all the other Christians in the pews who don't go to Sunday school. 
If you're going to go to Sunday school and take the theology of suffering, then go for the right reason. Go because you want to understand God's truth so that you can apply it to your everyday life. Why? Because you are motivated internally by, your, by the Spirit in you to live life as an expression of God's will in your everyday life. Now, the fear of the Lord does help us, just like the threat of discipline in your family helps your children to obey you. Even though you love them, they know that you will discipline them. And so Peter says what you already know, sin matters. We are not to take that lightly. Sin matters. It matters to God, and he takes it seriously. Verse 5, they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. But you have nothing to fear if you're living in Jesus Christ. You want assurance of your salvation? All you have to do is be living for Jesus Christ. You have it. Live for Jesus Christ and you have your personal assurance of your, your salvation. Peter tells us to live life with heaven in mind. In other words, orient life on earth now to the coming life when God recreates heaven on earth. And so the principle here is endure suffering by living life in the light of Judgment Day. Judgment Day is central to the gospel. You understand that? Judgment Day is central to the gospel. You don't just take Jesus, that's it. Getting saved is not you living the American dream today and then going to eternal Candyland when you die tomorrow. Getting saved is getting saved from God's wrath for sin. Getting saved is getting saved from judgment day. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, it is appointed unto all men once to die, but after this, the judgment. Live today in the light of judgment day tomorrow. Do that, Peter says, and you will endure in your life of faith. And that's what we all want. So let's finish up this problem passage about the gospel being preached to the dead. The whole rest of the New Testament, if you take all of it in its context, you always interpret a problem passage within the context of everything else that's in the New Testament, okay? And so the whole rest of the New Testament tells us that Peter is not saying the God, that the gospel is preached to the dead to give the dead a second chance at life. I think the key to interpreting this passage is Peter calling us in verse seven to live knowing that the end is at hand. That is to say we should take this as an expression of the eternality of the gospel understood within the context of the eternal consequences of the gospel. The eternality of the gospel has to be understood within the consequence of the within the context of the eternal consequence of the gospel. So ultimately, life on earth is a prelude to a greater life beyond. And Peter says those who hear the gospel and respond to it in life will be vindicated even if they are persecuted unto death. And Peter says the gospel will be the judge of those who fail it. That's the eternal consequence of the gospel on the living and the dead. All of humanity, throughout all of human history, will stand before God 
the living and the dead. And the gospel has an eternal consequence on that judgment day to the living and to the dead. And so Peter's point is let the gospel cause you to respond to the fact that by living your life sanctified to Christ, you have nothing to worry about and everything to look forward to. As long as you are living for Jesus, you have nothing to worry about and everything to look forward to. And so living for Christ escapes all the consequences the world will face later. Mentally prepared to suffer because you're armed with the mind of Christ, you are now prepared to exercise the mind of Christ in everyday life. And so it's completely reasonable. When I talk about you exercising the mind of Christ because you're armed with the mind of Christ, it is completely reasonable for you to face a situation any day and ask yourself that age-old question, what would Jesus do? And to the best of your knowledge, armed with the mind of Christ, you answer that question and act accordingly. So I just want you to be sure that you understand. Morality is not the central issue for living life in Jesus Christ. Living sanctified unto Christ is the central issue. Okay? Living sanctified unto Christ. Remember, it's Christ in us who changes us from immoral to moral, not the mere adoption of a hundred new standards. I'm for school and family standards. They are given to protect us. As long as you realize this, none of us ever became sinlessly moral, even if we adopted all hundred of the new standards. None of those ever made us moral. I am righteous not ever because I adopted standards. I am righteous because I am in Christ and he is righteous. My goal then is to live in Christ. And my final comment and application is this. I want you to think about what I just said when you mentor others. I don't care if you're a parent or a teacher or a one-on-one -on -one men's prayer breakfast, whatever you're doing, when you are mentoring others, remember, you don't mentor people by simply holding them accountable to standards. You mentor people as a process by living for Christ with them. Through all their hardships, through all your hardships, you live together, sanctified in Christ, and you pray and act accordingly together to be set apart, your life set apart unto God. That's what church membership is all about. And Peter writes to the church and says, living together, set apart unto God, is the essence of church family life. Living together, set apart unto God, is the essence of church family life. That first century church changed Rome. And if you care about America and you have any hope for a future, you better realize that it's the power of the gospel evidenced by churches filled with people living in response to the gospel, following the example of Christ's life. I'll leave you with this thought. If America is going downhill, it's not the failure of your particular political party. It is the massive failure of the church in America to prioritize the gospel. People are just too, Christians are just too busy living their life on their terms in the flesh to actually live set apart unto God. That takes mental preparation 
and deliberate effort. Let's pray and ask God to open our eyes to this great truth and help us to do our part to evangelize this mission field that we live in. Father, I think we understand what you've taught us today. Help us to understand that there's no amount, uh, no number of standards that we can follow that will actually make us holy. The entire law did nothing more than to show us that we were sinful. So God, help us to understand we who belong to Jesus Christ. Help us to understand that we have nothing to glory in. We are only righteous because we are in Christ and he is righteous. I pray that that would humble us and cause us to want to live our life set apart unto Jesus so that Jesus' spirit is operative in our lives every day, not just on Sundays when we come to church, but every day when we go to work, every day when our life touches life on the street. I pray, God, that you will help us see the importance of mental preparation, of deliberately coming here to study God's word, to be under our church's teachers, to be under the, a personal study of God's word so that that word can fill our hearts with truth. And God, I pray that by your grace, you, through your spirit in us, will cause us to want no longer to live for our own fleshly desires, but to want to live life set apart unto Jesus Christ. I pray, God, that you will do this for the sake of our mission field, so that people will see in the lives that we live that Jesus is real. And I pray that at the lives that we live will open the door to the message of the gospel that you give to us and trust to us and command us to share with others. Help us, Lord, to live lives that bring you the honor and the glory that you deserve. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.